Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Julia Lee, Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and your host for today's show. My guest today is Mimi Cook. Mimi is a PhD, writer, scholar, and teacher of things unwell. She is currently the co-editor of the Asian American Literary Review and an adjunct lecturer in disability studies at Georgetown University. Her work includes Open in Emergency, a hybrid book arts project decolonizing Asian American mental health, the Asian American Tarot, a reimagined deck of tarot cards, and the Open in Emergency Initiative, an ongoing national project developing mental health arts programming with universities and community spaces. Her new creative critical genre-bending book on mental health and a pedagogy of unwellness, Dear Elia, Letters from the Asian American Abyss, published by Duke University Press, is a journey into the depths of Asian American unwellness at the intersections of ableism, model minoritization, and the university, and an exploration of new approaches to building collective care. That collective care is based on a premise that most of us probably do not want to accept, that we are all differentially unwell, that the dream of productivity, upward mobility, health, and progress depends on a crushing kind of conformity to rules that we are told are achievable and natural, but only if we work really, really hard. If we fail to live up to that dream, it's because of some failure on our part. Dear Elia rejects this notion and asks, what would happen if instead of constantly looking inward to explain our perceived lack, we examined and then rebuilt the structures that judged us in the first place? Mimi focuses her critique on institutions like the mental health profession, colleges and universities, and the professoriate, but she also turns a loving but critical eye on Asian American studies in its institutional forms and its uneasy relationship to academia, which demands certain types of knowledge production, and the university, which demands certain types of power relations. 
in asking the reader to reconsider issues related to wellness and unwellness. The book is powerfully advocating for a different type of pedagogy, both in the classroom and out, one that emphasizes mutual care and self-processing in order to save all of our lives. Mimi, welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. Hi, thank you so much for having me. That was such a lovely introduction. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want to ask, um, I want to start actually by asking you to share with our listeners the story of how your book came into being. So what were some of the key events that led to Dear Elia? Sure. Um, yeah, I will. I, I love stories. I love telling stories. So I will tell the story of the uh, origins of Dear Elia, which involved telling the story of the origins of Open Emergency, my kind of precursor mental health project. Um, so as you mentioned, it uh, Open Emergency uh, is a hybrid book arts project, which is like fancy words for its stuff and not a book. It's a box um, with five parts. Uh, and it's a kind of co-curated uh, collective project, arts project that tries to find new language for Asian American unwellness, Asian American pain, Asian American suffering, um, because I was finding it very limited uh, in, like you mentioned, uh, psychology, psychiatry, for instance, the kind of psychological language around mental health, um, and even the language in Asian American studies. I didn't think fully was capturing um, the experiences of Asian Americans in terms of their mental health. And so, so Open Margin came out in 2016, and I started this project. Uh, it has some personal personal roots. I had experienced postpartum depression after having my daughter, whose name is Elia, the, the name on the title of my book. Um, and I struggled to find language around why my life felt so fucking shitty, right? Is it because I'm a bad mother? That's what everyone was telling me. That's what the world is telling me. Right? I'm a bad mother. That's why I don't love motherhood, apparently. And I wasn't finding joy and all the things you're supposed to find, meaning. Um, and that felt very unsatisfying as a narrative for why things felt so awful. I found the language of postpartum depression. Um, that was helpful. But I also realized that Asian American studies, um, the fields that I was trained in, Asian American studies, uh, gender and feminist studies were telling me that there are actually structural forces that shape how I feel as well. So I started bridging those things with my experiences. Meanwhile, I was teaching Asian American studies to undergraduate students at the University of Maryland. And uh, I was watching so many of my Asian American students struggle uh, and sometimes to the point of death. Right, Asian Americans have some of the highest rates of suicidal suicidal ideation, and I realized that what we're doing in the classroom needs to actually reflect that. It needs to reflect what the students are experiencing and give them tools to figure out what they're experiencing and to figure it out together and to build different things for our survival. So fast forward, open emergency was an attempt to answer that question: like, what is Asian American suffering? What hurts? And then how do we go on living while it hurts? And I asked like everybody and their mother, right, to contribute to this project. There are like 80 contributors to the project. Um, but people who are not normally considered mental health experts, right? When we say mental health experts, we usually think of psychiatrists, psychologists, and various psychotherapists. Um, and I wanted to ask artists, writers, humanities scholars, 
survivors, community members, and see what they thought, what hurts, and how have they been dealing with what hurts. And the answers I got were were incredibly rich and stunning and came out in the form of uh, tarot cards and original tarot cards that I curated. Um, we created our own DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the psychiatric Bible. Uh, we said, what if we made an Asian American one? And then what if we hacked it? Um, and letters and info medical brochures. So so we I tried to find these different forms to ask and answer these, this question. Fast forward now. Um, emergency went out into the world and did all kinds of things that I had no idea it would do. Uh, so it's been taught in, I don't know, hundreds of classrooms at this point. Um, students were really, really responded to it. And then I began to be invited places to come talk about mental health, to do workshops. So I actually started what I call now my mental health tour. So for the, for the past seven years, I've been going around to so many universities and so many community spaces and talking with people about mental health, sharing open emergency, um, activating it in the world, having people engage its materials, but also listening and learning even more about what unwellness looks like, especially for students. And so Dear Elia, my project, my book project, is a deepening of the work in a new form. So Open Emergency began asking the questions and offered some new language and some new approaches. And I decided, uh, encouraged by my editor at Duke, <laughs> to deepen that work in book form. And I had to be encouraged because I was wary of the book as a form for doing this, which is why Open Emergency is not a book in the first place. Um, I was wary of the academic book in particular. And so I thought if I'm going to do a book, I have to do a book in a way that thinks very intentionally about its form and doesn't just fall into like the genre of academic writing, right? Because academic writing for me so far had not served me <laughs> in helping myself or helping my students understand unwellness. And so what are the other forms that I could do that still could like fit in a book, right? Not a box, a book now with cover, with a cover, right? Um, but could I still play with that? Could I still figure out how to make that form do the work of authorizing non-experts like open emergency, um, asking and answering new questions with new language, and then also activating in the world. So like engaging people, engaging the reader in different ways. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And actually, you know, one of the things, there are a couple of things that struck me about your book as I was reading it. Um, first is like your, how you center pedagogic, like students, how you how you really center the experience of particularly students, undergraduate students. Um, lots of scholarly books have pedagogy, right, in their titles. Um, but this was, for me, a very different, this was entirely student-centered kind of um, approach. And then the other thing was the form and, and your inclusion of colleagues and uh, fellow adjuncts and the voices of undergraduates and other students. I mean, I, it was really incredible to me. Um, and the fact that you opened the book very clearly saying this is not an academic book. It looks like an academic book, maybe, right? Duke University Press and, and all those things, but it's not an academic book. And so um, I thought that was interesting, like that opening list of things that this book is not. And then also the opening is a letter, right, to your daughter. Um, and so why did you want to have those? I mean, you kind of answered that first question a little bit, but I'm curious about 
the yeah. the letter, the form of the letter, which takes, you know, which happens throughout that first chapter through the, the, that first chapter of the book, why those two kind of juxtaposed together? Yeah. Um, I started thinking about the letter as a form in open emergency. So my editor's note actually is, is in a letter to my daughter, Elia at the time as well. Um, and thinking of open emergency as a gift to her to help her find the tools to survive the awfulness of the world, right? And those were felt like the stakes for me as I was doing this project. So not only trying to save my own life, save my students' lives, but recognizing now that my daughter is going to go into the world that is also really fucked up for her and will harm her in all kinds of ways, what tools can I give her to help her move through that? So Open Emergency was the first step in doing that. Um, the book felt like a, continu a continuation of that. And so I wanted to open with a letter to her again. Also, now the book is named after her. Um, but I also wanted to structure the entire book as letters. So, yes, the first chapter has a bunch of different letters to my partner, uh, Lawrence Minboy Davis, um, to the reader. Uh, but also some of the letters are in the other chapters are, de are dedicated to written to students, written to my colleagues, um, written to teachers. And I did this because the letter to me is an intimate form, right? It allows for feeling work to happen, but also it breaks the illusion of the universal objective reader and audience, right? Like we write letters to someone. There is a very particular audience when we write a letter um, and there are stakes in writing that letter, right? You write a letter to someone because there's something you have to say. There are personal stakes. There's something you want them to hear or something you want them to respond to. And it makes the reader also feel like they have a stake in this conversation. And so academic books are usually written with a kind of universal you, which is not a universal person at all, right? Like most people cannot read an academic book. So that is definitely already not a universal person um, that's accessing academic books. But like, is there really an objective universal reader for anything, right? And so thinking about my book as a letter allowed me to really focus on who I'm talking to, what I want them to hear, or what I want us to figure out together, um, and what the stakes are for somebody engaging the book, right? Why does this matter to somebody? Why do I want someone to read the book? Why do I want them to do the activities in it? Why do I want them to um, reflect on the questions I'm asking or the stories of students, there's reasons for each of those things, right? And so the letter for me does that work, I think, hopefully, um, in, in a way that the genre of academic writing can't. Now, I start the book, like you said, saying the things that it's not. Um, like I say, it's not a tenure book. Uh, it's not a traditional academic scholarly book. It doesn't follow the genre. Yes, it's published by Duke which makes it look like an academic book, um, which was actually important to me, right? Because I am engaging intellectual questions and engaging scholarship and engaging fields like Asian American studies, like disability studies, like critical university studies. But I want to be very clear from the start for the reader that we're going to engage those fields in a very different way because I didn't want readers to come into the book seeing that it's published by Duke University Press, assuming the genre, assuming the work is going to do the things, the book is going to do the things that they expect an academic book to do. I had to be very clear, like this is intentionally not that. So they wouldn't bring their baggage, right, to the book 
um, and and their ideas, especially about rigor, like what counts as rigor. Uh, I feel like there are people who would um, fight me to the death, right? <laughs> about about what what counts as rigor, um, how we define it, why it matters. Uh, I'm sure I disagree with most people about what counts as rigor, and so this book names that right by saying it's not a tenure book, not a scholarly book. I'm going to actually do something rigorous in a totally different way than you expect it to do. And I hope that starting off uh, that way allows people to enter the work with a more of an open mind, if that makes sense. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. That totally makes sense. And in in fact, I think it's interesting because approaching the book... Um, as you describe, like kind of like the reader approaching the book with this open mind, I think your writing very quickly makes clear what the baggage is. Like even if the reader thinks, oh, I don't have mm. it, or I'm, I'm, you know, what baggage? <laughs> um, your your words, the way you set up the book, make that impossible to to continue to think that like that way. So I actually, mm. you know. Um, I appreciated the fact that you included some of the prompts that you've used in your workshops and in your talks, and you actually give the reader space in your book, right, to write his, her, their own ideas, right? Um, Yeah. You have this very kind of very, uh, I think, very effective pedagogical voice where you're like, go ahead and do it for five minutes. I'll be here. You know, don't, don't skip ahead. Like, just go ahead and try it. And we can go from there. Um, so it felt very, it felt like classroom in the best kind of way, like intimate in that. Oh, sense. I love um, that. Thank you. Yeah. So, so, but I, I, I'm curious about that because, you know, I want to talk about form because I really found this interesting. Yeah. You include a lot of things that I think most of us would consider to be ephemeral, like social media posts, mm. um, or you actually have, um, images of the whiteboards, um, that you filled in during, um, some of your visits with undergraduates or adjunct lecturers, um, you have annotated syllabi, your own syllabi, right, from pre-pandemic and then how you change things after the pandemic. So, and you also, um, your citational practice is really uh, community-based, I would say, because you cite, um, you kind of do, you do sort of do the sort of scholarly citations, but you also make clear, like, these are my interlocutors. These are the folks that I've been in mm-hmm. conversation with over the last, and their words, whether published or not, have impacted my thinking on this in these kinds of ways. Um, so it's very processual, I think, very process-oriented. So um, I was struck, A, that you kind of want to insert that community experience or that materiality mm-hmm. or that experience in, in your writing. Was that always going to, was that always the way it was going to be? Or, you know, when you were thinking about it, were you like, yes, I'm going to include my social media posts. I'm going to include pictures of whiteboards. Um, I'm going to include, you know, surveys that I filled out Google Docs, like, or did that come later in the in the writing and revision process for you? That's such a that's such a fun question um, because it makes me sound like I'm very like um, intentional and I plan things out really well. But no, I didn't actually. A lot of that came about as I was writing because these were the texts that made sense to explain the thing that I was explaining. Right, and I love you calling them ephemeral. Um, 
these texts, the ones you're pointing out, especially like a whiteboard and a social media post, well, maybe not the social media, but they, they can live forever, but a whiteboard doesn't live forever, right? And what does it mean to try to capture something like that and recognize that something ephemeral like that captures something important, right? And so th thank you for pointing that out. That really helps me actually think about um, why I look at the kind of sites that I look at because they're filled with feeling, right? They're, they're all this feeling work that is happening that isn't captured in usual texts. And so why not? Why not include them? Um, so yeah, I included lots of things from students. Like you said, the book is very student oriented. I sometimes think of the book as a love letter to students as well. Um, students who have taught me so much about teaching and have taught me so much about unwellness um, and, and who have helped me actually find so much language around unwellness. And so the book is definitely for students and I hope students read it and I hope they really see themselves in it. And they are kind of my, I have many audiences in mind, but they're definitely my main audience in mine because I want them to save their own lives with the book. Um, now my citational practice also, I would say that's part intentional and part developed as I was writing. Uh, yes, I did feel compelled sometimes to do like academic uh, footnotes, right? Where it's like, let me list all the things that I've read so I can prove to you that I've rigorous and done research. And once in a while, I did feel compelled to do that. But I tried to actively resist it, actually, um, because that is not the only way I've known things and I've learned things. And you're right. I have learned things through relationships and through talking with people. Again, ephemera, right? I've learned things through moments that aren't captured in um, publications, academic publications that take like five years to come out, right? Like the like there are other ways that knowledge happens. Um, and it feels really important, just as Open Emergency was a communal collective project. This book, even as a monograph with my name on it as a sole author, is still a communal collective project because I've done so much thinking in spaces with community, with loved ones. Um, and so, yes, people will find their names scattered randomly through the footnotes that probably didn't expect to find their names there uh, because we once had a conversation about something or we've had a ongoing text thread for years, right, about something. And that has been a space that helped me understand something differently. That's really I, I always say, uh, I say there's two ways to end up in my work. Either um, I love you so much or, or you fucked me over. Those are the two ways <laughs> to end up in my writing. <laughs> We're going to talk about that latter way in a minute, but yes, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I was, I was really struck by kind of also how you talk about workshops you participated in or panels where, you know, round tables where, and in fact, the idea for tarot, I think you said came from like not a panel at AAAS, right? The Association yeah. of Asian American Studies Conference, but like in the hallway that um, our colleague Long Bui was doing tarot readings, right? I think that's right. Yes, um, yes. And so the- It the was drunk, drunk happy hour, right? At an academic conference. That is when the fun stuff happens. But that is also when the really generative stuff happens, right? That's exactly. when you can see in this sort of like, a, I think you say interstitial spaces, right? Outside of these kinds of more institutionalized public- facing um mm -hmm. gatherings right that that this other kind of work can kind of happen and be really impactful um so can I ask you to explain what you mean by pedagogy of unwellness what does that mean yes yes um I came up with this term 
because first I'm going to actually explain unwellness. Then I'll explain pedagogy of unwellness. Um, Because I've been asked before, why do you use the term unwellness and and what does that mean for you? Um, And I like to say that I have no problem with the word illness personally. Um, I identify as an ill person or a chronically ill person. Uh, But I find that the word illness comes with a lot of baggage for most people. Uh, It's pathologized. Right. Um, And it also draws on a medical model that I'm very, very suspicious of the medical model of health or of mental health that looks at individual pathology that then is individually cured. Right. That's usually how things happen when you go to the doctor. (laughs) And so I did not want to bring that framework with me when thinking about mental health, because I wanted to locate mental health in structures and not just individual people with individual problems. And so unwellness felt much more capacious as a term. Um, We all use the word. We all at some point say, I feel unwell. And we all mean actually very different things when we use that term. And so it felt like a way to capture what hurts, which is my question all the time, right? Um, In the kind of broadest range possible, but also from like, the worst catastrophes in your fucking life to like something really mundane and banal in your day that makes you feel like crap, right? A headache, something small. And so I wanted something to capture all of that because all of that is shaped by structure. It's not just an individual experience. So pedagogy of unwellness is my way of thinking about how unwellness exists in the world. And I realized, uh, it exists in our world everywhere for everybody, and that maybe we are all actually unwell. And when I started thinking that through, that made so much sense to me, right? We are all dealing with shit at any given moment all the time. And so what does it mean to then assume unwellness? What does it mean to to recognize that we're all unwell? And then what do our classrooms have to look like then? What do our workplaces have to look like? What do our homes and families have to look like if we're all assuming that we're all unwell and we all need and deserve care? So a pedagogy of unwellness recognizes that we're all unwell and then points us towards collective care, like you mentioned, right? Points us towards, well, if we're all unwell, then we all need care, not sometimes, not some of us some of the time, which is how we tend to think about illness, right? Uh, But all of us all the time in different ways, and in all the spaces that we move in. That was really helpful for me, actually, because I, you know, illness for me sounds acute, right? It sounds like a one-time, it sounds like it's, it's sort of bounded in time and space. And what I'm hearing or what I'm getting from you in your book is this idea of actually it is, um, it encompasses every aspect of our life. Like you cannot constrain unwellness to just a particular moment or particular, um period like two or three days right um there's something right whatever your sick leave is <laughs> yeah exactly right or yeah however much sick leave or maternity leave whatever family leave you get mm-hmm. um so it's a condition that had like is is temporally unbound right it's like completely there are no limits to it mm-hmm. um and the idea that we are all unwell right and telling ourselves various versions of oh no i'm fine right or I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think was really powerful, at least for me, like understanding that or being able to understand that was really, it was really, really important. Um, so I want to talk about colleges and universities now. Um, so, and again, this was really helpful to me because I realized, oh, I'm doing this in my classroom. I do it quite a bit. <laughs> um, so this was like a, a come to Jesus moment of like, I need to say that. Um, you talk about how statistics around Asian American mental health, right? Um, high rates of suicide ideation, like that suicide, um, um, for our Asian Americans between the ages of like 18 to 24, um, suicide is the leading cause of death, right? For Asian Americans between the ages of 15 to 24, that these statistics are used primarily like in pedagogical settings to deny model minority narratives, right? We can't be the model and look at how much pain we're collectively in. Um, so I I have often done that, right? I cite those statistics as a way of countering that that destructive narrative. Um, but I think what's important about what you're doing is um, you're asking why is this age group so vulnerable or so um, so prone, right, to this kind of suicidal ideation, to this idea, to pain, to the hurting, right? And what are they all doing at around that time period? Where are they? Where are a lot of them going? Um, and so in college, in college <laughs> or they're trying to get into college, right? Or they're trying right. to the after effects of college. So, um, so you're asking us, as you said, to look at um, wellness as sort of a, a structural issue, right? Structural violence. Um, and if we do that, then we have to look at colleges and universities, right? As not right, exactly as not the solution um, to that, but actually a driver of it. Um, and this is what was really like shifted my thinking, I think, quite a bit. So how you know how is that possible? How are institutions of higher education not just um, implicated in unwellness, but actually like the source of unwellness? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for calling that a come to Jesus moment. That's amazing. Um, yeah. And I like the way you frame that in terms of thinking possibly before that universities and higher education um, are ways out of unwellness. Um, and what we're, I want to think about that assumption that we're making, right? And yes, and then I'm arguing that actually universities are unwellness machines. They actually create so much unwellness. Um, in terms of the Asian American stats, I mean, I cite them too. But I started thinking about, like you said, why? What makes life feel so unbearable? And here I'm inspired by Erin Ning's work, right? Where she asks, what is unbearable about a life that looks like straight A's and perfectly normal and banal and going to school and maybe, you know, be going to med school, or becoming a doctor, like all the things are the American dream, right? What is unbearable about that? And it's actually, that's the actual question and answer too. The American dream is un unbearable. Um, the idea that we have to, like you say, work hard and that working hard will get you what you want and need. That's meritocracy, right? Um, and that the way to do it is through what I call compulsory wellness and hyperproductivity. So the university's main values actually are compulsory wellness and hyperproductivity. So by that, I mean productivity to extreme levels, but also tied to our sense of ourselves and value in ourselves. So we are valued because we are productive, because we're good workers, we're good citizens, because we achieve things. Um, that's how we value ourselves, how we value each other. Now, compulsory wellness is related to that. 
the idea that we're supposed to be well. So like, I know this is, this is jarring for a lot of people because they're like, isn't wellness good? Um, but if you are forced to pretend that you are well all the time, right? And what does wellness look like? Uh, like we, I mentioned sick days earlier. Wellness looks like the ability to work, right? The binary between sick and well or ill and well requires, uh, like you're saying, that temporal uh, boundary that sometimes you're sick, most of the time you're supposed to be well. And, and how do we determine that? Oh, the days you can work, right? Those are the days you're well and the days you can't work. Those are the days you're sick. And so there's this, and talking to students makes this very clear, um, that they are not allowed to say that things are hard or that they're struggling. They do not have that permission because you are penalized, right? If you are struggling, it's your fault that you're struggling. It's not the system's fault. It's not the structures around you that are abandoning you. It's your fault. And that is so strong in schools, right? So actually education for me is one of the biggest um, systems of imparting meritocracy and valuing yourself through achievement because what is school but like not a system of trying to achieve and being judged and evaluated by your achievements at every step of the way. So like, how can we, we be well in that kind of space, right? That asks us to pretend we're not well all the time. That makes us produce and achieve and then judge ourselves and each other. Um, and then abandons us if we don't meet those standards. Like that is not a system that actually is one of care at all. Even as universities love to say that they care about students and faculty um, and that they uh, support and nurture wellness. Wellness actually is now like a buzzword at every university now. There are so, right? There are wellness programs, wellness initiatives, wellness days. Um, and it's, for me, it's such a fucking farce <laughs> because it's, a co-optation of wellness, the language of wellness to make better workers, right? People take care of themselves so that they can work more, so that they can go back to work or the other way. People work hard to earn the ability to, to rest or uh, take care of themselves. It's always tied to work. I was just thinking when you were talking, come to a workshop on wellness. <laughs> yes. Let's have another meeting or let's add something to your calendar to be able to talk about wellness. Whereas I'm like, why don't you just give everybody the day off like, to do what right. they do? Yeah. You know, right. Why not cancel at all the meetings right. as right. a form of care? No, right. because that makes institutional not function. Right. right. So right. it can't, that can't happen as a form of care. You know, one of the ways that I see this when you're talking about students in particular in the classroom is um, and the way that we individuate sort of um, blame, right, responsibility is the student who has missed, you know, assignments or not done some work. And then you find they, you know, they tell you much later uh, or, you know, after the quarter, whenever, oh, I was going through this really terrible thing, um, right. thing or health related thing. And the first response is always, well, why didn't you, you know, tell me, why didn't you communicate mm -hmm. with your TA? Why didn't you do, I, I, I do this too. Right. But um, it's, and listening to you talk, I realized they don't feel like they have a voice, like that's not an option to them. It's like, not it, an it, option. I think faculty instructors are often like, why don't students do this thing that seems really obvious? But of course, that obvious is if you're in the system, 
Do you know what I mean? Like to them, yeah, it's yeah. obvious because they don't have the space or the, they're not given the tools like to understand, oh, actually I can express something here. Instead, it's like, I just have to be quiet and, you know, flunk or, you know, whatever it is, whatever right. the outcome is, I just have to accept it. So, you know, I think that's one like really concrete moment when I was reading and when you were talking where I was like, oh, I see, like, I see where that, that shows up in this very kind of in this small way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The students don't feel like they can tell their professors, one, because professors are always assuming students are lying. This constant need for documentation, right? This constant need for um, proof and uh, to adjudicate whether a need is good enough for the excuse that you're, the exception that you're asking for, right? And so students don't want to be judged by professors. They don't want to um, they, they're forced to parade out their traumas and their pain to let somebody else say whether that's good enough that for you to be, you know, for it's okay for you to miss class that day, right? Um, they're punished no matter what. They're punished for missing class. They're punished for telling you why they miss class too. Maybe not you individually as a person. Like lots of professors are very caring people, but the policies in place and the assumptions around wellness and unwellness, meaning like that students are supposed to be well and that they work hard, they'll stay well, and that they're being unwell is an exception. Only happens sometimes, right? If you assume that unwellness is happening all the time, because how can it not be? Student life is really, really hard. How can they not feel like shit a lot of the times, right? They're struggling in school. I'm sure their family lives are fucked, right? Their relationships are fucked. Uh, financially, probably struggling as well. There are many days I don't want to work. When I'm teaching, there are many days I don't want to come to class. So of course, there's going to be days that students don't want to come to class. The students don't feel able to do it, but they force themselves to do it because they'll be punished if they don't. Right. If they're sick more than whatever, the three times they're allowed to miss class, the arbitrary number of three that people like, uh, which is actually even generous because some people have like one as their number. <laughs> um, but it's totally arbitrary. And students feel like they have to fit that mold. And they feel so much shame when they don't. They really internalize that it's their fault that things are hard and that they see their friends doing supposedly well because we're all pretending, right? We're all pretending we're doing well. Um, we have our shit together and we're all achieving. And we're like competitively so. We're competitively achieving and competitively exhausted, like, right? We pretend like, we pretend that it's okay to be this exhausted. Um, and then we have to compete who is more exhausted and who is more busy because that makes us more valuable, a better person. So they see their friends not admitting that they're unwell. How can they themselves then admit they're unwell and not it not be their own flaw, their own fault? It's deeply internalized. And professors do not make it safe to tell them otherwise. Yeah. I wanna um I wanna turn to the the chapter titled The Professor is Ill, right? And so that was a that was a difficult chapter to read um for me personally. Um, but in that chapter, you tell the story of your firing, which are your words, um, from the Asian American Studies program at the University of Maryland after many years, many, many years of um, service and labor, advising, teaching, program building. Um, and it wasn't just you. It was, I believe it was all the adjuncts that in that program were fired at the same time. 
Um, and what really struck me, there were many things that struck me about that chapter, but what really struck me was your sense, your articulation of your anger and your grief um, over your dismissal from this place that you had this really, this huge hand building and that your partner, Lawrence, also had a huge hand building. He was also dismissed. Um, and that the grief and the anger that you were expressing were somehow viewed as unprofessional, right? Um, and that's not how we behave in academic settings. That's not how we behave in professional settings. Um, and you talk at length, it's, it's quite painful to read about the mask that you feel like you have to put on, right, during some of those meetings, um, where you have to absorb administrative or faculty emotions without being able to express any yourself because you're in the position of that, you're, you're the adjunct, right? Um, so it just, it did make me think about expressions of anger and grief and how um, women of color, Asian American women, um, marginalized folks are not allowed to express those kinds of feelings um, or they're labeled as threatening or crazy or unprofessional or, you know, all, there's a whole host, there's a lot of vocabulary that we can call upon. Um, so where does grief and or anger, like where does that fit in to your thinking about pedagogies of unwellness? Like, do you see that connection? Where where do you see that? That's a great question. And thank you for being willing to to talk about the chapter that is really hard, <laughs> I think, and will be very hard for a lot of academics. We have to uh, talk about it. I think you have to talk about it, you know. Yeah. So. Um, one, one small correction. So yes, all the adjuncts were fired, but every single adjunct except for me and Lawrence were rehired the following semester. Okay. So it actually actually weren't really fired just me and Lawrence were, were fired um, and like I say it's very I use the language of firing but it's you know firing an adjunct just involves not renewing their contract it's actually much it's much easier to get rid of an adjunct um, in terms of policy right so then technically is it really a firing they just didn't get renewed uh, which is the terms of a adjunct contract yes so I appreciate you recognizing and validating the the pain that you read in that chapter um, and recognizing that we're not allowed to usually express those kinds of things. And it, those things are uh, are pathologized in all the ways that you, all the words that you used. And I have found that anger and grief actually are directly connected to a pedagogy of unwellness because those are two feelings that are actually um usually not allowed in what we call like respectable spaces, right? They go against respectability in so many ways. Um, and Asian American professors in universities are working very hard to try to belong in a university that doesn't really want them, right? And so what what does it mean to try to fit in into an institution? It's to then be respectable in that institution, right? And so no, we're not allowed to express things that are considered um, that, that go against ideas of what a good worker or a professional worker is supposed to look like, which is why I lean so hard into grief and anger, because I want to make space for those feelings that are not allowed. And they're not allowed for, um, I think, differentially. Like some people are more allowed feelings than other people, uh, depending on their positionality and their kind of structural location. 
um, and their social location, right? Oh, I lost my train of thought. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Some people are not allowed to feel those things. Uh, and for me as an adjunct, so most people listening probably know what an adjunct is, um, but some, some people might not, meaning somebody hired on contract or right? a contingent instructor. Um, contracts can be anywhere from one term to multiple terms, uh, but usually they involve really, really shit pay and no or little benefits um, and key, no guarantee of future employment, right? So as an adjunct, I'm like the bottom rung of instructors in the university and I have to do certain kinds of emotional labor to get and keep my job. And I think I'm hoping that that is what was invisible before and becomes visible through the book is that kind of emotional work that I have to hide a lot of what I feel and that I have to take care of people's feelings who are located hierarchically above me in the system. This is true for any kind of hierarchy, hierarchy, right? But I think in academia, we are all colleagues and friends, and then we don't realize that the power structures our relationships as well, what it allows and what it doesn't allow. And I was, um, I'm actually not sure why I was not rehired in the first place. That remains a mystery to me. Um, I have I have speculation. I don't know why, but I definitely know why after I made a stink about it, right? After I made a stink, meaning I was very angry um, and I expressed that anger on social media and I was in deep, deep grief about what I was losing, which felt like a home to me and to Lawrence um, and, and friendships, right? Relationships that I was losing. And I have very little interest in respectability. So I'm like, I'm going to feel and I'm going to tell people how I feel. And I'm going to demand that people make space for how I feel. And that's what this book, I hope, allows everybody to do, right? To have their full feelings, to feel like they're allowed to do that, to not be punished by that, and then to demand the care that, that those feelings require. And so that's what, what I did. Of course, that then got me in more trouble with, with the unit uh, where I basically got blacklisted and like publicly called a liar, right? Because I was doing things that um, demanded care that they did not want to provide that broke social rules. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, I, it was painful for me because I am obviously faculty, I'm a faculty member, I'm a chair, I'm a part of the administration, essentially, to a certain extent. Um, but you say at one point, oh, this is this, this is like something like a it feels like a tenure denial. This must be what a tenure denial is, right? Um, and having undergone a tenure denial myself, I was like, yeah, I remember, I remember the feelings of. I think I, I probably was not like you because I was like, move on, move on, gotta go, gotta go, gotta keep going. Um, and so, but it always it comes back. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's not like you're like. I've left that behind now. I don't have to feel that way ever again. Like those feelings are there. Um, so yeah, so it felt, it felt very, um, I recognized a lot of what you were, yeah. what you were describing. Right. It's real, it's real loss, right? Yeah. It's real loss. Even if you do go on to do better things, right? Sometimes, you know, people want to remind me that I've gone on from Maryland to do great things and that it was actually maybe too small of a space for me to kind of do the work that I want to do. Like I couldn't have done open emergency in the ways that I've done it. Couldn't have written this book had I stayed there and been and continued to be um, contingent faculty there. 
long-term, long-term contingent faculty there, but that I hate silver linings, right? They don't, they don't erase what was awful. And so you have to hold both of them at the same time. And I think pain requires that kind of witnessing and honoring grief requires that kind of witnessing and honoring. So yes, I hear you um, in terms of your tenure denial and like that, that doesn't go away just because now you, you know, are in a great position and doing great stuff now. Right. Yeah. Um, let's talk to, let's change the subject to another happy topic, which is the pandemic. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so the narrative around the pandemic is that it forced instructors, right. To really change how we look at the classroom, like think about access, think about like the students. Um, but it seems to me and to you too, right. That it just made all the things that already weren't working like so glaringly obvious like it was impossible to ignore anymore so it wasn't it wasn't it was like a change in our perception as opposed to a change in like material reality for a lot of our students so can you talk about the pandemic and how it has impacted um how it's impacted how you think about the classroom the environment how you think about your pedagogy yeah um so as you know, I have a like gigantic monster of a chapter on pandemic and teaching um, because the pandemic affected my teaching so much. And I wanted to write that down <laughs> and show the process that um, unfolded as I was dealing with thinking about how the pandemic is affecting my students. So like I said before, we without the pedagogy of unwellness, we are usually assuming that our students are well and our instructors are well, and that sickness happens sometimes, occasionally, right? And we, our syllabi make room for those exceptions, like the number of absences you're allowed to have, or you can ask for an extension under you know, extreme um, extenuating circumstances. Those syllabi assume wellness. Well, what does it look like to assume unwellness in the classroom? Well, we got a taste of that in the pandemic because we had sudden shared acute unwellness, right? Unwellness became collective in a way that we could all had like similar language to talk about it, we could recognize, which is why I think universities then shifted their policies, right? And essentially created more access, which we used to call pre-pandemic times, um, accommodations. We still call them accommodations, right? But what happened in the pandemic is accommodations became more the norm, meaning they opened up access for, for so many people, we relaxed all kinds of policies. Well, we're like several years now after 2020, and uh, I, I think all those policies have snapped back into place, if not even, even worse than before. So we didn't actually learn, I think, what we were supposed to learn in the pandemic. Um, but uh, I, I remember, you know, as these policies were loosening, um, I remember a lot of my disabled friends and colleagues and community felt very bitter about it because these were things, these were access needs that they had been asking for from institutions for their entire lives and not getting them because the, the, the exceptions they were asking were too much somehow. Their need was too much or it was um, not, uh, not rigorous or not allowing the classrooms to function the way they're supposed to function, right? And suddenly now everyone's getting those accommodations, but they also felt hope because, oh, maybe now we recognize that everybody needs things 
And look, it doesn't break the classroom to suddenly provide all kinds of care or leniency or flexibility, right? We can actually still do things like learning <laughs> in a classroom with different kinds of policies. Um, like I said, that 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 hope kind of died uh, it, about a year or two years later as as we started trying to go back to normal. Well, I didn't go back to normal. So what became very clear to me, like I knew students were unwell before the pandemic, right? I was already doing mental health work. Um, but when it I when I came face to face with how unwell because of the pandemic, then I realized, wait, I think they might have been this unwell before too, in different ways, like not dealing with a global pandemic, but dealing with all kinds of awfulness in their lives. Why don't we do this on a normal basis? The things that we're doing now, right? Why didn't we do it before? And that completely changed my teaching because I couldn't come up with a good reason why I wasn't doing these things before. Um, rigor is never an answer that made sense to me in the ways that we kind of traditionally or normatively define rigor because I'm still doing cool things in my classroom and while caring for students during the pandemic. So like, like you mentioned, I um, annotate my own syllabus in this chapter, uh, which was actually quite painful at first. So I took a syllabus of mine before the pandemic. And I was like, what was I actually doing before the pandemic? Because I changed a bunch of shit, right? In 2020, we all had to change our syllabi. So I changed a bunch of shit. But I went back and looked and I was like, oh my God, I have all these policies that I now would never force upon my students because I'm recognizing they're unwell now. And essentially I read my own syllabi for filth. Like I went through and looked for the ableism um, in with totally new eyes because as a professor teaching disability studies, you would think that I would know what ableism looked like because that's what I teach. Uh, but no, I actually did not know what it looked like in the classroom until I intentionally started close reading my own syllabus. And so I, I do all of that uh, publicly in the book so that people can see, one, what it looks like where ableism is hidden inside our syllabi in ways that we don't realize, but also I want it to be a model of vulnerability. Like, look, if I, somebody who supposedly is an expert on ableism, was doing all this ableist shit, right? Uh, Jim Lee, a mutual friend of ours, uh, says that I should call myself a recovering ableist, right? I'm a recovering ableist <laughs> in the classroom. Um, it's okay that you were doing this before as well. Like we are all invested in ableism and meritocracy, right? Let's undo that together. Let's unlearn that together. And I'm hoping that my model in the book allows people to take that kind of scary step. And one that's probably filled with a lot of shame as well, right? The resistance is probably because you feel ashamed. I know plenty of disability studies scholars who feel ashamed of their past syllabi as they are also going on a journey of figuring out how to better support students and better support themselves, right? So I wanted to model that it's okay to, to make mistakes and to learn and that this is a process of learning um, and that it's a valuable and needed process because we need to think of the classroom now as a space of care and not just as a space of achievement or excellence, right, or productivity, but of one where we are all trying to help each other survive. And part of learning is also doing that as well. You hacked your own syllabus. I mean, that's what, right? I mean, I, I, yeah. I that to be extremely helpful. And I did, I have looked back over my old pre-pandemic syllabi. Um, and just like you, I, you know, it's like, wow, I can't, 
I can't believe I used to think that was super important. Um, yeah, priorities totally shift, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it has. And so I think there's, a, I, for me at least, there's a lot more room <laughs> to to grow in that regard. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think all of us should be looking at our previous syllabi anyway, right? To make sure that- Yeah, exactly. Adapting and this changing. Should, this should be a regular process, right? That's because right. Because we're always learning how to teach better, hopefully better, not worse, right? Hopefully we're learning to teach better. Getting better. So, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So last question, and it's kind of an annoying one, but I always like to know, um, what are you working on now? Or what do you hope to be working on? I mean, I know that kind of goes against what you're talking about with productivity and everything, but I yeah, yeah. want to know what, you know, what exciting things are, you know, happening in your mind or are you thinking about? Exciting things that are happening in my mind. Um, I am, no, I'm going to refuse to answer your question. So I am not working on anything except I am also still working all the time, right? That's the contradiction, meaning I'm not focusing on a new project or anything like that, but my life is filled with labor. Um, and the labor that I am laboring right now, doing right now, is actually really focused on the book tour for this book, um, which is something that's amazing and awful at the same time, right? Like I am actually deeply resentful about how much I have to hustle, right? And go talk about this book um, because that's a lot of work, right? I'm writing a book about like letting go of our attachments to productivity and work and be lazy. And I can't, I'm not allowed to be lazy about how this book enters the world. <laughs> so, so much of my energy is going into that. Um, but what I am trying to do for myself is recognize it as labor so that I don't feel like I'm not doing anything, but I'm not working on some new project, right? That I know I have a very limited capacity of energy of spoons. How do I spread it across all of this real labor that I'm doing, talking about the book, traveling, um, traveling a lot over the next two months? How do I take care of myself? How do I uh, figure out new structures of care under these new structural conditions of having to travel and talk about the book so much. So yeah, that's the work. And how do I continue, you know, being a good parent during that? That's always the work that I'm thinking about. Right. That's a great answer. And I'm glad you didn't answer it the way you know, <laughs> the expectation behind it. So the book is out. When is the publication date? It is March, March 26th. Okay, so in a little less than a month. And if people are interested in catching you, I think you're going to several places um, all over the country. If people are interested in catching you in person somewhere, they can go to your, do you have a website? I have a website. It's just my name, mimicook.com. Okay. Um, and I have my full book tour up there with details. Uh, hopefully people can catch me in person. I also have a couple of virtual ones mm -hmm. for people who can't catch me in person. And I really want people to come out because I want to be in community and conversation with people. I want people to take care of me too in, during this during this tour. Um, so yeah, I want, I want to uh, be in spaces of community and care during this. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mimi, for, for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. This was lovely.